Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to see you all here this morning. Um, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastoral apprentices here. Uh, this is my first time preaching at EBF, uh, so I'm thankful to Jason and to John uh, for the opportunity to do that. Uh, and this morning, we get to look at the heartwarming text of Genesis chapter 3, uh, the narrative of the fall of man, which basically means I get to talk about evil, pain, suffering, and everything that is wrong with the world. Uh, so thanks again, Jason and John. <laughs> let's, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, because even when it is hard to hear, it is true and good and a gift to us. So we ask right now that by your spirit, you would make our ears ready to hear and our hearts ready to change. And we want this change to be in accordance with your word and it alone, so that we end up looking more like your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, if you were here, we talked about God's good creation and how he rules in absolute sovereignty with power and with grace. And we learned that God is good and powerful and gracious. And we heard that our purpose here as his image bearers is to extend his rule throughout all creation, as we rest in the ultimate reign of Christ the King. God's rule over creation is right and good and absolute, and we heard about this last week. Since then, 85 people were shot in Chicago, 14 of them killed, each one an image-bearer of the living God, now dead. And for some of us, that's so familiar that we're numb to it. This week, around 16,000 American marriages ended in divorce. The text said the two shall become one flesh. But now that union is ripped, the families are torn apart, and the best image we have of Christ in the church is muddled. In this past week, over 10,000 pregnancies were ended prematurely by miscarriage and just as many by abortion. God blessed Adam and Eve and told them to fill the earth with children who bear his image. But now we're haunted by images of dead infants. If we're honest, this world doesn't always seem to be ruled by a good and powerful and gracious God. So what's the deal? Was last Sunday's sermon a lie? No, last Sunday's sermon was not a lie, but neither was it the end of the story. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and let's stand as we do that for the reading of God's Word. It's there in the beginning of the text, Genesis chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 1, and I will read through verse 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Amen. You can take a seat. Last week, Sam introduced this series, which is about God's big story, where we're looking at the stories in the Bible to see the story of the Bible. And when we do that, we realize that the story of the Bible is also the story of our own lives. And so we're doing, we're doing this series so that we can learn how we fit into this story, into God's big story, so that we might appropriately act and play our roles of what it means to be those who are in Christ. And so this series is towards that hope, that we would know our place in the story. And there are four scenes to this story, and they are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And today, we're looking at scene two, the fall. And though we hesitate to admit it, this is the scene we know too well. This is the part that comes all too naturally to us. And so this morning, we're going to turn to the perhaps familiar narrative of the fall of man to talk about evil and sin and suffering. And we'll see that these things which are introduced in this narrative are carried through other stories in the Bible and even to the stories of our own lives. In 1995, Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book called Not the Way It Is Supposed to Be. Uh, it's a book about sin, one of the best books on the topic. I know it's kind of weird to recommend a book about sin, but if I were to do it, this, this would be the one. And in his introduction, he says something that I think is important for us to think about, um, kind of why it's important to think and talk about sin. He says this, he says, where sin is concerned, people mumble now. When it comes to good and evil, we are all mumblers. Our world, which some are beginning to label as a post-truth society, hesitates to call anything right or wrong. We elevate tolerance as the highest of all virtues, and it closes our throats when it comes to sin. This past May, I moved into a new apartment in Rogers Park. Um, we live on the first floor, and we have a neighbor who lives on the third floor who has three dogs. And she comes down with these dogs almost every morning, usually around 5.30 or 6 in the morning. And there's three dogs, so it's not a quiet affair. Uh, that every morning, almost without fail, the dogs come down barking and yelping and snarling at each other, as you would expect. I mean, they're excited to get outside. 
And the whole time she's coming down the stairs, she's obviously trying to keep them quiet, and she's going, shh, shh, shh. It does not work. It does not work. That's not how you train a dog to be quiet. Shh does not work for dogs. Shh does not work for sin either. If we're silent about sin, it will kill us. Our world has framed the discussion of good and evil in terms of psychology or education, and it might talk about habits or unfortunate situations, but when is the last time you heard someone talk about evil and wickedness or suffering and death in a serious way? I think some of our art has it. Our songs and our movies and our literature, they can't seem to shake it. Because deep down, we're still haunted by it because we know it is real. And that's the reason it's important for us today to talk about it, to talk about the fall of man, to talk about sin. It's not fun or lighthearted, but we should do it because sin and evil and suffering are real things. And we can't begin to understand the grace of God to us in Christ Jesus until we realize just how broken we are. So today, as we look at the narrative of the fall, the passage has two basic movements. So first, it will show us the essence of sin. We'll talk about sin and basically the sinfulness of sin. What makes sin so wrong? What is wrong about sin? The first half of the narrative will illustrate this for us, what sin is at its core. Then, in the second half of the passage, we begin to see all of sin's consequences. And it gives us a sobering glimpse into all the evil and the suffering that comes as a result of sin. So this is what we're looking at today, the essence of sin and all of its devastating consequences. So let's begin starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. All right, and we already have to stop here because we've just met a new character. Last week we were introduced to God and to Adam and to Eve, but now we have a serpent. We are told that he is more crafty than all the other animals. The serpent is Satan. He is evil and deceptive and the first and greatest opponent of God. Revelation 12, when speaking of Satan, calls him that ancient serpent. In John 8, Jesus calls him the father of all lies. He is known as the deceiver and the accuser, and here we encounter him, and we see that he is clearly evil. And he begins his deception by questioning the word of God. Look at the second part of verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the clear answer to this question is no, God did not say that. In chapter 2, verse 27, we see that God said, You may surely eat of every tree that is in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There is a clear and definite answer to the serpent's question, and Eve almost gets it right. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, 
neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now again, her response here is close to what God said, almost word for word. Did you catch it? Did you see the difference? There's an added phrase in the middle that's easy to miss. Neither shall you touch it. Why the addition? Why is she adding to what God said? Eve's addition to the commandment of God is a sign that she's already beginning to be deceived. The serpent comes and asks if God really said you can't eat from any tree in the garden. And Eve says, no, we can eat of all the trees in the garden except that one, that one in the middle. We can't eat of it. In fact, we can't even touch it or else we'll die. She is beginning to be deceived by what the serpent is doing in questioning the word of God. And it's beginning because she's doubting the goodness of God's command to her. It's starting to seem arbitrary, like something that can be added to or changed, like a suggestion that she can take or leave. But God's commands are never arbitrary. They are good and right, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. They are not some terms and agreement form that we adhere to by checking a box. They are our delight to rejoice in, our soil to plant ourselves in, our solid rock to stand on in a world full of confusion. Though it's subtle, the text is suggesting that Eve is beginning to be deceived and the word of God is becoming arbitrary to her. And Satan senses this and he gets more aggressive. Look in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This negation here in the original language comes first in the text. Satan says, no, you will not surely die. What started as questioning the word of God has now become blatant disagreement with it. God says, you shall surely die. The serpent says, no, you will not surely die. Two claims to truth standing in direct opposition to one another. And the serpent offers some more encouragement, some further deception, that is. He does something here that we still do when we're trying to get someone to agree with us. It's a logical fallacy, but it's so common that we have a name for it. It's called ad hominem. It's when you attack the person rather than your arguments. When you're trying to convince someone, you try to show the other position, well, that person isn't qualified to hold that position anyway. So you try to get someone to agree with you. And we see this is exactly what Satan does. He questions the character of God. Look in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent is trying to convince Eve that the reason God forbid them from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that God didn't want them to be like him. Now, the text doesn't provide, it doesn't explicitly say God's motive for his commandment. But what we know about the character of God so far in the story convinces me that what Satan is saying here could not be further from the truth. God's motive is not to prevent Adam and Eve from becoming like him. He places Adam in the garden to keep it and to rule it. He makes Adam and Eve in his image. He brings the animals to Adam and lets him name them. And he invites Adam and Eve. Be with me. Be creative with me. Reign with me. Walk with me. Rest with me. Trust me. Trust me and I will show you what is good. But the serpent says the commandment is to keep Adam and Eve from becoming like him. The heart of deception is questioning the character of God. 
the heart of deception is questioning the character of God. So who will Eve believe? She heard from God in the past, and she's hearing from Satan now. The two things she's hearing are in opposition to one another, and who will she believe? Let's look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is about so much more than a piece of fruit. The first sin, this fall of man, will only become appropriately disturbing to us when we feel the gravity of what is happening here. She does not eat just because she's hungry. She's not taking the fruit because it looks good. She eats because she does not trust God's character and God's plan. And she would rather seek some perverted form of freedom that's hidden as autonomy than submit to the one true and wise and good God. And Adam, her husband who was with her, passively follows her into this great evil, himself participating in this fall of man, in this rebellion against God. First John says that all that is in the world, the totality of evil and sin, is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Sin is lust and pride and selfishness, and at its root, it is the ignorant belief that we know better than God does. We see this throughout the Bible, in Israel's repeated idolatry, in David's adultery with Bathsheba, in the Pharisees thinking that Jesus Christ was living a life that was not pleasing to God. And we see it in our own lives, because we think we know how to handle our money, or our relationships, or our sexuality, and at times we're ignorant enough to think that we know better than God does. Let's take our money, for example. God tells us in Scripture not to worry, to give generously, to seek first the kingdom of God. But we justify our worry as wisdom, because what is my backup plan if I lose my job? And we dodge generosity with selfishness because those shoes really do look good on me. And instead of seeking first the kingdom of God, we build our kingdoms of retirements and vacations. Now, please don't mishear me here. I'm not saying that having a plan or buying shoes or going on vacation are inherently evil things. But sometimes we let ourselves off the hook by convincing ourselves that we know better than God does how to handle the things that he's given to us. Sin is absurdity. It is insanity. It really exists, but it is unreality. It's the creature saying to the creator, I know better than you. And I think that my idea of a good life is better than yours. The deception begins when we question the character of God, when we fail to believe that he is good and powerful and gracious, and that his plan for us is perfect. Now, there are people in this world and in this room that have experienced real pain and real hardship, and many are left wondering whether God's plan for their life is good and gracious and perfect. And there are times when we need to cover our mouths 
because we don't know how and we don't know why, but we believe that he is good. Everybody suffers, some much more than others, most certainly more than I have in my 22 years. And he gives us grace to believe, even in times of pain, that he's good and that he's powerful and that he's gracious. And we'll see this more as we continue, but I just want to note here that I know sometimes it's hard to believe that he's good. But the testimony of Scripture and the witness of the church both point to the reality that he is good and stands as faithful to us and for us. And as a church, we pray that we're a people who encourage one another and always believe with one another that he is good. Adam and Eve were given the choice of who they were going to place their trust in. One path followed the good character and plan of God, and the other was rooted in pride. And who are we going to believe? God, who in Christ says, I am the truth, or Satan, the father of all lies. This choice is given to us every day, and so we pray that God would, by his spirit, make us a people who continually place our trust in him. Sin is unbelief, but we are a people who believe. Okay, so to this point in the narrative, we've been talking about the essence of sin. What sin is, it's unbelief, it's absurdity, it is doubting God, it is failing to believe in his good character to us. Now, as the narrative moves forward, we're going to turn to consider the consequences of sin. And they are more widespread and harmful and serious than we often care to admit. John Milton, in his epic poem, Paradise Lost, wrote of this moment, the moment when Eve ate the fruit. Forth reaching to the fruit, she plucked, she ate. Earth felt the wound, and nature from her seat, sighing through all her works, gave signs of woe that all was lost. So now we're going to turn to consider all that has been lost, the consequences of sin bringing evil and suffering and pain into this world. Let's look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In chapter 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. But now they are ashamed. Sin leads to deep and personal shame. And this shame leads us to pathetic attempts of self-help where we try to fix our own sin. And we come up with cheap versions of justification, but we know that these don't make us right with God. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is not a pretty picture. This isn't some creative Etsy fashion project that they can be proud of. We're talking bare minimum here, and they're left feeling vulnerable and weak and ashamed. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin brings shame, and it also brings guilt. They know that their loincloths are inadequate. And so when they hear God coming, they hide behind the trees of the garden. But even the trees in the midst of the garden cannot hide their shame and their guilt. 
And God calls to them in their hiding, through their shame and through their guilt. And he asks in verse 9, where are you? His call reaches through deep shame and through every attempt to hide our guilt. When Adam hears the Lord, he responds in verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. It's an honest answer. He tells God why he hid. But God responds with two more questions. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam has been naked as long as, been, as, long as he has been alive. And he was never ashamed of this, but now he's ashamed of it. So God is wondering, why is that? Have you eaten of the forbidden tree? And Adam responds in verse 12. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And this answer is less admirable than his first. Sin leads us to blame others because confession is hard. And the best kind of blaming is the one that's mixed with a little bit of confession. You know, the safe kind of confession that still presents ourselves as victims. Yeah, well, I ate some fruit, but only because of that woman that you gave to me. And here he even tries to bring the blame back to God. After all, God, it was your idea to give her to me, and she's the one who ate, and she made me do it. Sin leads us to blame anyone and anything except for ourselves. So God asks Eve in verse 13, What is this that you have done? And she says, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Throwing the blame forward just a little bit further. Sin brings shame and guilt and blame. But it does more than that. Sin ruins everything, absolutely everything. It is a reality-distorting force that blinds us to what is true and good and beautiful. Sin destroys our relationship with creation and with each other and with God. There is not one part of this world that is not stained with sin. Every square inch of the earth now groans with famines and earthquakes and cancer. It cries that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And this is a consequence of sin. Our relationship with creation, intended to be one where we keep and steward and rule, has been broken to one where we steal and abuse and are subjected to disaster. The shalom of Eden has been vandalized. The peace of paradise has been ravaged. And earth felt the wound. And our relationships with each other are fractured. No one is in denial of this reality. An important reason for this is that sin even ruins our relationship with ourselves, our self-perception. We're filled with shame. And it takes personal and unique forms, but it is overwhelming. We live in an anxious age. Anxiety among young people in America is off the charts right now. It's off the charts. And we still feel the weight of our guilt. We're haunted by past sins, tormented by habitual sins, and burdened by corporate sins that we participate in. And so we're scattered and we're fragile and we're trying to find some sort of identity, but at times we don't even know who we are. 
And our insecurity leads us to hurt those around us, especially those who try to get close. Because if you get close to me, you're going to see things that you don't like. So I'm going to have to do whatever it takes to keep you away. And so we hide behind filters because we're ashamed of our bodies. We keep up Snapchat streaks because that makes us feel like we're actually in relationship with people. We validate ourselves with retweets because those signify approval. And we distract ourselves with Facebook because we'd rather waste our hours in the blue light than call the friend that we haven't talked to in four months. These are things we do because we're ashamed. And they're killing us on the inside. Just ask the doctor, writing yet another prescription for Xanax. All of our relationships are broken. There are large-scale relational sins like racism and sexism, and there are the more subtle things like anger and jealousy and bitterness. And we love those subtle sins because sometimes it feels good to be angry, doesn't it? We're so distorted that at times we even hate holiness. You know that one person who seems to do everything right and you sort of resent them for it? So you lie and convince yourself that they're not actually that good. Or you mock their righteousness as naivete. And we try to bring others down because it's easier that way. But we believe in a holy God. And I hope we're not a people that are trying to bring him down too. And we hurt our spouses and our kids and our co-workers and our roommates and the people at the register and our CTA riders and our Uber drivers. And we continue to build a world that is full of blame and lacking in confession. Our relationships with each other are broken, full of selfishness and suffering. And our relationship with God is broken. The God who created us and wants to be with us, we run and hide from him when we see him coming. We are naked and afraid, and we hide behind trees in the midst of the garden, shaking in our loincloths because we know that they're inadequate. And our sinful bodies cannot withstand the glory of his holiness, and so we hide ourselves. My question this morning is, what leaves are you sewing together? What trees are you hiding behind? Is it money and power and status? Or serving and doing and being noticed? Is it your alma mater or your GPA? Your political party? Your social activism? What are you hiding behind? Whatever it is, it does not work. We cannot hide our sin and our guilt and our shame from God. He sees all of it and he knows how bad it is. And even the thickest trees cannot keep away his call to us. We're hiding from the presence of the Lord God because our relationship with him has been broken. Sin ruins everything. Our relationships with creation and with ourselves and with each other and with God are fractured. And sin runs rampant in scripture and in our world. In the next chapter, by Genesis 4, we have one brother killing another. A few chapters later, a couple more generations, and the whole earth is full of evil, and only Noah and his family are saved from the flood. God chooses Israel, and they prove to be unfaithful, idolatrous people. Throughout Scripture, sin runs rampant, and it does still today. 
We live in a world that is full of injustices of every kind. With murder and slavery and pornography, we live in a sinful world. And our own lives are stained with sin. And even as Christians, we find ourselves at times doing evil things that we do not want to do. Sin and evil and suffering are real, more common and more powerful than we would like to think. And we hate to admit it, but we know it's true. And it's important to admit that it's true, that it is not a lie. It is not a lie. But neither is it the end of the story. Even in our sin, in our utter rebellion against God, our Creator and King, He remains good and powerful and gracious. When Adam and Eve are hiding, He calls to them. He comes with questions, not accusations. He is wholly unintimidated by their sin. In the midst of chaos and disorder, he addresses them individually and begins the restoration of all that was lost. In verses 17 and 18, he tells the man that work will be hard and painful. And all the nine-to-fivers said amen. In verse 16, he tells the woman that marriage will be hard and childbearing will be painful. And all the mothers said amen. In verses 14 and 15, he tells Satan that there, will en- that there will be enmity between him and humanity. And that God will send someone who will crush him. And all the people of God said amen. Earlier, Satan was introduced as God's first and greatest opponent. And that he is. But he is not equal to God. This is not yin and yang. This is God, the creator and ruler of all things, and Satan, a fallen and rebellious creature who one day will be completely and utterly defeated. All that he speaks is false. Not a word of it is true. God speaks and worlds come into existence. Satan is not creative. He is not present everywhere. He does not know everything. He cannot do all things. The perpetuator of evil, the one who still deceives and who still accuses, will one day be damned, sent to the lake of fire with all his followers to remain there forever in death. He is the enemy of God, but he is not God's equal. Even in scene two, God is good and powerful and gracious. Not unsure of what to do with their sin, he deliberately and delicately takes actions to remedy it. So in verse 21, he slays an animal to make garments of skins to clothe them. And later he will slay his only son, raising him to clothe us in new bodies that can withstand the glory of his holiness. And he can't stand the thought of mankind remaining in this fallen state forever. So in verses 23 and 24, he banishes Adam and Eve from the garden to protect them from the tree of life. And later in the new heaven and the new earth, that tree of life will be for the healing of the nations. God is still good and powerful and gracious. Sin is unbelief and it destroys And the right response to sin is not blame and self-help, but repentance and belief. Henry David Thoreau warned that there exist men who will lie on their backs, talking about the fall of man, 
who never make an effort to get up. Who never make an effort to get up. Repentance is the way we get up. And it starts with confession, true and honest confession. Because the blood of Christ covers all of our sins. And through his death, he paid our debt, offering us new life in him. And so we confess as people who believe that we are sinners. We have not believed in God's word. We have not followed his commandments. We have been foolish enough to think that we know better than he does, and we have become idolaters. But we also confess as people who believe in the grace of God to us in Christ Jesus. We believe that all of our sins, worthy of death and damnation, were paid for in full by the blood of Christ, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we place our faith in him, God sees the death of Christ as sufficient, promising to raise us as he raised Christ from the dead. Satan accuses, but the Holy Spirit convicts. He leads us to repentance as he changes our hearts, conforming them to desire God. In Christ, all of our joys and all of our sorrows are redeemed. And when sin sends us searching for our identity, the Spirit again reminds us that it is found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Confession is the only appropriate response to sin. And as we hear about the fall of man, we come to know all the more acutely that we have played this role too. And so now we're going to move into a time of confession. We're going to give you about two minutes of silence for you individually to confess your sins to God. This time is for everyone, and we all need it. Maybe you've sinned against your family. Maybe you have not been a good neighbor. There might be sins of idolatry. There might be sexual sins. There might be moments of pride or lust or selfishness or anger or lying. All of these are sinful, and they all need to be confessed to God. And all of these can be forgiven, covered by the spotless blood of the Lamb. So let's move into this time now. Again, we'll give you about two minutes of silence for you to individually confess your sins to God. Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.